Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. But God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. Many people have tried to use religious freedom as a tool to silence other people, claiming that religious freedom is your right not to be exposed to things that you disagree with. And they advocate to limit freedom of religion and freedom of conscience using the phrase freedom of worship to minimize this broader, fuller right, this broader, full citizenship into this tiny, tiny little thing, telling you to check your religion at the door when you go to work and when you are a part of civil society. Freedom from religion instead of freedom of religion. That's an important distinction that you shouldn't forget. So what's the latest disagreement you're following in social media? (laughs) You know, we live in a world of disagreements over disputable matters. Some are minor as to which sports teams are the best, but there are disputes over a variety of important things, religion, politics, and now the matter of human sexuality and identity. I'm Paul Perot, and thanks for listening to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. The Church for Centuries has dealt with disputable matters of faith and practice, sometimes well, sometimes poorly. In the West, much of that has been in the context of a culture largely formed by the Church. But now we live in a more post-Christian world that has become increasingly hostile to our viewpoint. How do we face this? Well, Gabe, we hope today's show will help us think well and advance good on this issue. And that's what we do here, constantly trying to stay curious, think well, advance good. And today we're going to learn about such a fundamental principle and idea that unfortunately I think a lot of people have forgotten. And especially in America right now, we've forgotten this idea of the freedom of conscience. What is that? What are conscience rights? You know, we don't talk a lot about it. We talk about free speech, free association. But in this current moment where we're seeing a lot more dialogue go forward about people being forced to do things, maybe even against their will or against their conscience or against the way they think things ought to be. How should we think about that as Christians? Yes, and for that, we have a couple of talks. Now, one will be new to us, which we'll get to later. It came from this past spring's Culture Summit in Nashville. But first, we want to listen again to a portion of a talk from a previous Q conference featuring a good friend of Q, Andy Crouch. Andy has written many books, including one of our favorites called Culture Making. Now, a few years ago, Andy spoke about freedom of religion, not just as a private good, but as a common good. Now let's listen to just a portion of his talk. Maybe the most uh, liberating idea I've encountered in the last few years of my life and thinking and work is the idea of the common good. It's very central to this whole event and it's become very central to my own thinking and living. And it's an ancient idea that comes from Aristotle and the Apostle Paul, but it was revived in the late 19th century by Pope Leo XIII. 
who was really the first pope to take the papacy at a time where the Catholic Church no longer had any direct political influence, direct political power uh, in, in Europe. And rather than becoming withdrawn or defensive in response to this change, Leo wrote letters, wrote letter after letter, re-articulating the Christian faith and especially articulating in a new way its social teaching. And at the heart of Leo's teaching about the Christian faith and its, uh, and its social concern was the idea of the common good. The common good is about three things, basically, I've come to think. It's about the flourishing of persons in community. The common good is about the flourishing of persons in community. It's about flourishing, becoming everything we were created to become, both as individuals and in our relationships with one another. It's about persons. The common good is always anchored in the infinite dignity of every human being created in the image of God. And the common good is about community because persons created in the image of a triune God do not flourish unless they're placed in community. I think this is the the core definition of the common good, the flourishing of persons in community. But there's a corollary to this definition, an important corollary, and it's the question of what's the best test of the common good? How do you know when you have a society that's characterized by the flourishing of persons in community? Well, I've come to believe the test of the common good is the flourishing of the vulnerable the flourishing of the vulnerable. As far as biblical people are concerned, human societies are graded on a curve and the fate of the most vulnerable in those societies is given the most weight. There are all kinds of conditions in which the affluent, privileged, powerful majority can flourish. But the far more demanding test of any society is the fate of the most vulnerable, the youngest, the oldest, the most frail, the most marginalized, and a community where the vulnerable flourish is in fact a community where all persons flourish because what it is to be a person is to be vulnerable. And I want to make a very specific case this morning that if you care about the flourishing of persons, especially the vulnerable in community, you will care about freedom of religion. And here's where I want to begin with this. Religion is one of the deepest forms of human flourishing. It's one of the most characteristic things human beings can do. Human beings have the extraordinary, unique capacity among creatures to bind themselves to deep commitments about the ultimate meaning of the world. It's one of the burdens and glories of human life to not just act based on our immediate interests or preferences or needs, but on some deep conviction about the ultimate truth of reality. And in many ways, we believe, especially those of us in this room believe, that what it is to be a flourishing human being is, strangely enough, to bind yourself to something bigger than yourself. And to do so even and especially when that binding and that commitment is costly to you. Understood this way, religion is not just about beliefs or worship. It's about committed action based on what you believe and what or whom you worship. So James, the Apostle James, puts it this way in his letter. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. There are two elements to James's understanding of pure, undefiled, true religion. First of all, it's public action, caring for orphans and widows, public action on behalf of the most vulnerable and keeping oneself unstained by the world, that is, by being distinctly different in some way from the society around us. Religious freedom needs to make room not just for private beliefs or perhaps for secluded worship behind closed doors and high walls, but for distinctive public action based on countercultural commitments. And this is why the test of religious freedom in many ways is how it protects protects minority religious communities. Religious freedom should protect you if you're a Jew in Saudi Arabia, if you're a Palestinian Arab in Israel, if you're a Christian in Malaysia, or if you're a Muslim in Nashville. The test is how it protects religious minorities. Because being denied religious freedom, being... Uh, prevented from acting out your deepest commitments in public is one of the deepest denials of human flourishing. There's something else in James's definition that I think is significant if we care about the common good, and it's his attention to orphans and widows, the most vulnerable in, biblical, in the, way, the biblical frame. The, the empirical reality is the kinds of communities that very often provide the deepest and most transformative services for the most vulnerable are religious communities. This is a deeply Christian thing, but it's not just a Christian thing. It seems strikingly often that religious commitments of many kinds create the kinds of communities that attend to the needs of the most vulnerable in the deepest and most transformative ways. If you care about the the flourishing of persons, especially the vulnerable in community, you will care about religious freedom. But here is the difficult truth. Religious freedom is more at risk globally and in the United States than I think it has been in maybe any of our lifetimes in this room. The Pew uh, Charitable Trust Religion and Public Life Project for seven years now has been uh, rigorously tracking and studying religious freedom globally. They measure two dimensions of threats to religious freedom around the world, what they call government restriction and what they call social hostility. Both of these dimensions matter. Americans, I think when you say religious freedom, Americans tend to think of it as primarily a legal or governmental matter. But social hostility, non-legal, non-governmental resistance to religious expression is just as important. 35 miles southeast of us uh, today is Murfreesboro, Tennessee, uh, where a significant public outcry arose in 2009 over plans to build a mosque and Islamic center. Now, the County Planning Commission voted unanimously to permit the construction. There was not, this is not primarily a case of government restriction, but that decision was met with vandalism and threats of violence. It was met with social hostility. And social hostility is every bit as effective as legal restrictions in preventing communities from living out their faith in public. The most recent um, Pew study of religious freedom covers data through the year 2012. That's, uh, you know, as recently as we have complete data. In 2012, they found social hostility was at an all-time high worldwide uh, across all the countries that they study, every major country in the world. And one especially troubling finding for us in the United States is that in the U.S., 
Government restrictions on religion have gone up more in the last six years than in any other large nation. The United States ranking, the Pew scale ranks uh, countries by low restriction, moderate restriction, high and very high restriction. Uh, When they started studying this in 2007, was solidly in the low category. Three years ago, for the first time, the U.S. moved from the low category to what they call moderate. And what this means is that more than half of the countries in the world have less government restriction on religion than the United States by the methodology the Pew researchers use. Now, the United States still obviously has far more religious freedom than countries that score high or very high, like Saudi Arabia or China. And I think it's uh, very important to clarify, the increase on government restrictions is not primarily in this country a, a federal matter. It's not primarily federal restrictions. It tends to be state and local government decisions. For example, many substantial burdens on religious freedom actually come from zoning decisions, like the situation in Murfreesboro potentially could have been. Mosques, churches, religious schools often face more burdensome zoning and regulatory requirements from their local governments than secular nonprofits or businesses. So it turns out that one of the ways you can advance religious freedom and the common good is to attend zoning hearings. Why? Why is this happening globally and in our country? Why why are protections for religious freedom eroding? Why is social hostility increasing? Well, I think there are two reasons which are not hard for you or me to guess. One is simply that religious pluralism is increasing around the world. We live next door more and more to people who are religiously different from us. And the other is that religious freedom is hard. This is hard. No matter what you are for, there is something you are against that you are going to have to tolerate if you want religious freedom. Again, that was just a portion of a talk from Andy Crouch on freedom of religion and the common good. And you can hear the full talk as a subscriber to the Q Media platform at qideas.org. And if you're not a subscriber yet, remember, you can request a 30-day free trial again at qideas.org. As we continue this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, Gabe, we just heard Andy talk about freedom of religion. But there's an intimately related issue. The freedom of conscience. So let's spend the rest of the show exploring that a bit more. At our most recent Culture Summit, we invited Beckett Fund's Vice President and Executive Director, Monsi Alvarado, to talk to us about freedom of conscience. And why does this idea matter? How is it the same or different than freedom of religion? And why should we think well about this topic? And I think you're going to find it pertinent as we consider in the days ahead the conversations that we must have about when is it okay for someone to usurp a person's conscience. Hello, hello. Yeah, this is a really, really important right. It's um, fundamental, just like you heard described by the wonderful Gabe, who I'm so honored to share this stage with. And, um, but it's a challenge, and it's a challenge to love. Uh, But before I tell you why it's a challenge to love, let me tell you what freedom of conscience is and, and why it matters. Freedom of conscience, as you heard, is part of this bigger concept, freedom of religion. And, and freedom of religion is the key that unlocks every other freedom that we have in this country. Because what could be more sacred than what's in your heart, than what's in your mind? What should be more respected and untouchable 
than what you've freely developed and freely discovered in your search for God. Freedom of conscience is often called freedom of thought. It's your right to believe. But it's only one of three pieces that make up religious freedom. Believing, forming, and acting. Your ability to believe, to form yourself and teach others, and to be inspired by that belief to act, to go out in the world and to do something in society. I've spent the last 12 years defending religious freedom for people of all beliefs and no belief at all, because it's a human right. So how do these two words, religious freedom, come together to encompass all this stuff? Let's start with the first one, religious. If I were talking to a monolithic group of people who all believe the same thing and confess one system of belief, this would be easy. We get that religion thing. But it's not easy. We live in America, in a country where less than half of its citizens belong to a synagogue, a temple, a church, or a community of faith. Most people, when they think of that first word, they think of organized religion. But that's wrong. It's myopic. And it forgets the importance of free will. Free will. Religion, love of God, freely given, freely accepted. And your ability to change your mind or to doubt. Religious, in the phrase religious freedom, is this important reminder about what we believe about human nature. It's not about who God is or if God is. It's about who we are and what our purpose is on this earth. We're not just beings floating around with no purpose and no calling. We're individuals with our eyes fixed on the far horizon, asking these big questions about who we are and why we are. Millennials always talk about existential dread and how it comes in the middle of the night. Yes, ask those questions. It's there for a reason. Religion then becomes a declaration. That word is the declaration of who we are as human beings and in our search for truth. And then the second part, freedom, it seems easy. It's a little more direct though. It's not just a lofty concept. It compels us to actually do something. It's an action, freedom to believe, to act, to search, to find, and then to do something with what we find. Many people have tried to use religious freedom as a tool to silence other people, claiming that religious freedom is your right not to be exposed to things that you disagree with. And they advocate to limit freedom of religion and freedom of conscience using the phrase freedom of worship to minimize this broader, fuller right, this broader, full citizenship into this tiny, tiny little thing telling you to check your religion at the door when you go to work and when you are a part of civil society. Freedom from religion instead of freedom of religion. That's an important distinction that you shouldn't forget. And in using this freedom of religion and this truth, we develop a perspective a conscience. Our religion is a lens that we apply to every single aspect of our lives. It motivates everything that we do. And having that lens, it demands courage. That we live our lives motivated by this belief that we've found. Let me tell you a story. When Armando Valladares was 23 years old, he followed his conscience and he ended up in Castro's gulag. Living in Castro's Cuba, Armando refused to do something that seemed very small. He refused to say a few words, I'm with Fidel. Even after years of torture and watching many of his fellow fighters die, either in body or in spirit, he would still refuse to say those words. Because if he had just said those words, the torture would have stopped. He'd been released. And that told him 
everything he needed to know. They didn't keep him in jail for 22 years, eight years in solitary confinement because those words meant nothing. Saying those words would constitute a spiritual suicide. It didn't matter that he was tortured for years, eventually losing his ability to walk, partially losing his ability to see. His soul was free and he would give up everything for that. And the words he wrote in his memoir, they feel even more true today. Sometimes your freedom is not taken away at gunpoint. It's done with a little piece of paper, one seemingly meaningless rule at a time, one small silencing at a time. And in the midst of this persecution and imprisonment, Armando Valladares, he practiced his faith and his conscience. It was alive. You see, people aren't interested in what you do. They're interested in why you do it. And so that why needs to be really clear in your life. Armando Valladares, he was a political prisoner and his aggressors knew what they were doing. They knew that they could control everything about his life, but he knew that they couldn't control what's here and what's here. But what about us? Those of us on the outside, those of us who are out from under the thumb of coercion, what should we do? Christians and people of faith have a very important role to play in protecting and defending religious freedom for everybody, that search for truth. As Christians, you and I are called to make a decision. Do we really believe the incarnational reality of our faith, that we're made in the image and likeness of God and we're called to fulfillment in what we believe? If so, then religious freedom has one more important characteristic, and that's humility. There is nothing that I can do or say to bring someone to Christ. I can't force that. It's their choice. Religious freedom is not a political tactic or an evangelistic tool. It's not a political football. Religious freedom is a basic human need, and the government should not co-opt it or use it for its own means. But it's also not an evangelistic tool. Religious freedom is not a means to an end. It's just a door. It's our common agreement to have these conversations. And it's our common agreement that these conversations are true and good and valuable. Often, that's the piece that's most misunderstood. The only tool in our toolkit is humility. Well, humility and love. Because if you want to have these discussions based on our common humanity, your conscience will inspire you to do these good things. These good things, they're motivated by love. That's true evangelization. It's loving well. It means overcoming your own fear, your own timidity, your own fear of rejection. Because Christ and the other person is so much more important than anything else, than any risk, any hypothetical cost. So then how do you practice freedom of conscience? How do you defend religious freedom too? Use it. I love the story of the Apostle Paul because on its face, his life is a story of what our country believes about religious freedom. Individuals come to believe on their own terms, no government can force you and no government can stop you. Writing from prison and house arrest, Paul lit souls on fire. And his public conversion reminds us that we don't know when that moment of truth, that search for truth is going to peak. We don't know that. But we know that that search and that moment has to be protected, no matter how wild what we believe might be. Use your religious freedom because you believe in love. Put freedom of conscience to work by believing, forming, and acting.
live on the outside the way that Armando Valladares lived in prison. He describes it like this. I never asked God to get me out of here. I didn't think that God should be used for that kind of request. I only asked that he allow me to resist, that he give me the faith and spiritual strength to bear up under these conditions without sickening with hatred. I only prayed for him to accompany me and his presence, which I felt, made my faith an indestructible shield. Again, this is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, and that was a talk from this past spring's Culture Summit from the Beckett Fund's Muncie Alvarado on the topic of the freedom of conscience. Again, there's a lot of disagreements and many important issues in our day, especially places in where we as Christians disagree with the direction of much of our society. And again, if you've not thought much about conscience issues, we hope this show today helps us both as individuals and gave us Christians together engage this topic well. It's a conversation we need to be having a lot more of, and maybe this will just be the beginning of that for you. And I want to encourage you, if you want to go deeper into this principle, which I just believe is so critical for any leader right now trying to discern how to lead your people how to help people understand our conscience. I think all the way back at the beginning of this country, James Madison felt conscience rights were the most fundamental rights. Even in the United Nations, you see their declaration as one of the human rights, as their clauses have laid out, is the right of somebody to live by their conscience and never be coerced to do something against their conscience. So if you care about learning more about this, Beckett Fund has a great podcast series that I would encourage you to tune into. You can learn more about it at Beckett Law. Dot org that's b e c k e t law dot org and season two of their podcast called Stream of Conscience, pretty cool, pretty clever, is airing there, and you can listen to that, subscribe to that, and continue to learn more about this important idea. Thank you again for being a part of this Q Ideas community. Thank you for sharing these kinds of talks with your friends, with other leaders in your community. We're going to continue every week to try to educate you and keep you informed of how to think well about our current moment in society. And until next week, I hope you have a wonderful week. Ideas with Gabe Lyons is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at myfaithradio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.